Al-Qaeda has to get out of the Syrian war in Aleppo. The plea that's turned into a demand by the UN Special Envoy Staff and Mistura. How long can Putin support Assad? The Prime Minister says British forces are a special case when it comes to human rights prosecutions, but is she right? And Islamic State, what does MI5 really think? may face total destruction by Christmas with thousands killed. That's according to the United Nations Special Envoy to Syria, Staffan de Mistura, who's made a direct appeal to Al-Qaeda-linked fighters of the Al-Nusra Front in eastern Aleppo to leave the city in order to spare civilians there. Can you please look at my eyes? And those of the Aleppo people, of the 275,000 civilians that are there where you are, and confidently tell those 275,000 people that uh, you are going to stay there and that you remain there and keep hostage of your refusal to leave the city because 1,000 of you are deciding on the destiny of 275,000 civilians. I would like you to reply this question, not to me, but to those 275,000 people. And if you did decide to leave in dignity and with your weapons to Idlib or anywhere you wanted to go, I personally am ready physically to accompany you. Well, I'm joined now by Professor of Peace Studies Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford as well as BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, that statement there by Staff and Mr. It was a briefing in Geneva. Do you think it'll have any effect, Paul Rogers? I rather doubt it. Um, the Assad regime, backed heavily by the Russians, seems now to have decided that it's going to go for a major assault on eastern Aleppo and it has the air power to do it. The bombing is pretty indiscriminate and I don't think the rebels will just leave like that. Um, they will stay. They may eventually melt away, but in the short term I think it's fairly unlikely. I think de Mistura and the other UN people are getting fairly near to despair uh, because Russia has decided that the Assad regime just doesn't have to be secure in Damascus it has to be secure really across as much of the country as possible. So to that extent, I'm afraid, I think we are in for further carnage and humanitarian disasters. One doesn't see much chance of a change. And, of course, the talks between Sergei Lavrov and, uh, and Kerry are actually off at present. So there's no real meeting between the Americans and the Russians either. Christopher Lee, how long can Vladimir Putin keep on supporting the Syrian government like this? Well... The, the assumption is he can, get, he, he can do so as long as they're winning. And this is what, in, in very, very, very crude terms, is what they imagine they're doing at the moment. But talking um, uh, last week, uh, well, in last week at, uh, in New York, to some of the people at the United Nations, there was a United Nations committee talking through this of how you get, how do you get to the stage where you could, you would have, for example, say, you know, uh, things like, uh, Human rights have got to be involved, etc., and people just dismiss it. Somebody was keep, kept coming up with poll statistics. If you go back to March, in Moscow, generally, 
and in uh, in 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 Russia, 83% of people would appear to have supported Putin's stand in Syria. By the time we get to the end of September, October, 61%, and that was an average over three weeks, 61% on polling. Now there is only one polling operation you can actually trust in what as much as you can in Russia, but those were the figures, and they were quite consistent. And the breakdown was the sort of thing that M- Mori does. It was in that sort of detail. Um, I don't think that Putin's going to pull out at any particular moment, but the thing is changing. But the public opinion at home could change that, could it? it, it I don't think it's going to change very uh, very much more than that because it's the same sort of thing that you got, for example, in, in Chechnya. It's the same sort of thing you got perhaps in, if you go back to, I don't know, 89, when the Russians were coming out of, uh, out of Afghanistan. But it is, it is certain that there's a different opinion now than there was, or it appears mm. to be, than there was at the beginning. The other thing is this: they were talking about this thing about this thing with the, the Americans say, "Okay, we're going to break off talks." This has Samantha Power, the American uh, UN uh, lady, written all over it. Uh, she has been pushing this idea now for three months that America ought to break off talks with Putin. Because all the time America is talking, and we've had, I can't remember, there's about 450 meetings between, uh, between the two of them at the moment. Uh, all the time the Americans are talking to the Russians, Putin has actually got the, the status that he needs at home as well as elsewhere. They need to talk to me, therefore I can do what I want. Or, or I can actually say, well, we're trying to get a solution mm. to this all the time. And that is slipping. And this is, this is uh, Samantha Powell's. Uh, yep. grip on the whole thing, which reflects, of course, um, the, the one person that listens to her very, very carefully is Hillary Clinton. Professor Paul Rogers, um, you're saying that you think that the current situation will continue in eastern Aleppo, um, assuming that it is all but raised to the ground by Christmas. What next? Well, I think I, I, what Christopher is saying is extremely significant. What we tend to forget is that Russia, I think people behind Putin are now getting seriously worried that in fact Russia has fallen into a trap of its own making. If Putin wants to maintain status, the last thing he can have is actually for Assad to be at risk of falling. And if the Russians withdraw, that will be the case. What we all forget is that Russia is not the economic superpower of 30 years ago. Russia is a weak country. I mean, it's surprising, I still find it surprising that most people don't realise the total gross domestic product of Russia is less than half of that of Britain or France, Mm. uh, a third of that of Germany. We assume that Russia is an extremely powerful economic country. It is not, and it's already finding it difficult to maintain the operations in Crimea, the support in eastern Ukraine, and in Syria. Putin looks extremely good, extremely strong. Behind that, I'm afraid, is a much more precarious position, and the change in the polls is very interesting. It is very curious, isn't it? An irony, in fact, that Putin needs Assad. Yes, absolutely. And, and that may, but, of course, meanwhile, what we see is, as you're saying, raising to the ground, you know, a disaster in Aleppo. Also, one is finding out, that finding that some of the relatively moderate Islamist groups in Syria are actually tending to be attracted to the more extreme ones because of what the Russians and the, and the Assad regime are doing. And that may be another form of blowback which the Russians really hadn't thought about when they went into this. Mm. Gentlemen, stay with us. A former Prime Minister of Portugal is going to be the next Secretary-General of the United Nations. And there's a lot on his plate, isn't there? Antonio Guterres will replace Ban Ki-moon. So, Paul, what can you tell us about him? 
Well, Guterres is a very interesting person. I mean, he comes from sort of centre-left politics. I think he was seven years as Prime Minister of Portugal, so a long political experience there. More interestingly, though, he spent ten years uh, as director of the United Nations Refugee Council, Mm. and he's been constantly trying to say that the whole issue of refugees and migrants is far more serious than people accept. He was saying this long before the problems of the last two or three years. And my own view is that it's bad now. It's going to get far worse when climate change kicks in if that's not prevented. So I think in, in some ways it's a, in a very interesting So you'll be very happy about this. Well, well, yes, although I have to say that I think the better candidate would have been uh, the former director of the UNDP, uh, Helen Clark, the mm. former New Zealand Prime Minister. But he is interesting. He is a, a tough guy. And the UN basically needs a very effective leadership at present. It's not really headed. What do you think he'll bring to the uh, table with the current crisis? I tell you what, I met him first at a NATO meeting, NATO summit meeting in a bar in Rome. I always reckon you can trust somebody you meet in a bar in Rome, especially (laughs) if they turned out to be the Prime Minister at the time. This man is a great table mover. He moves among the tables at organisations. Uh, he's got a lovely habit. You see him, he, the arms go on the biceps of the other person. When he impresses on them, his, his views. Paul's absolutely right. It's something that Paul, I know, has been pushing for a long time. Take notice of the refugee problem, and this is a man who can do it. And that's yeah. where the whole problem, to some extent, about a third of the world exists. Christopher, stay with us. Professor Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford. Thank you for your time today. <laughs> Still to come, what's it really like to work for MI5? A former soldier gives us an insider's view. In the Mediterranean this week, all eyes are on the 11,000 refugees off the coast of Libya. But away from that, Allied forces are in the middle of a high-powered naval exercise as part of the ongoing guarantee for the security of the eastern region of the Med. Well, Captain Rob Pedri commands HMS Ocean, one of the lead vessels on exercise Albanian Lion. And he's on the line now at sea, somewhere, somewhere off the coast of Albania. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. We're currently in the midst of the exercise. And just tell me a little bit more about how HMS Ocean fits into this exercise. Well, as you'll be aware, HMS Ocean's a landing platform helicopter and also an amphibious assault ship and, of course, um, a lead element within the Joint Expeditionary Force Maritime, which, of course, is the UK's high-readiness forward-deployed maritime task group. So what have you been doing so far? Well, it's been a pretty intensive exercise, um, putting the task group through its paces and, from ocean standpoint, giving us the opportunity to work up our tailored air group and surface manoeuvre forces. Um, we've also conducted a non-combatant evacuation operation, which, of course, very much represents the type of operation we may be called upon to execute for real over the coming months whilst we're deployed. Mm, apart from those things you just told me that you've been doing, what else is the exercise testing exactly? Well, it's, in, it's testing the task group across its full range of capabilities. Of course, we've got 4-2 Commando Royal Marines embarked and also aircraft from all three services. So HMS Ocean certainly a very joint capability. Your systems and ship's company, how do you test them over such a short period of time? 
Well, we deployed some three weeks ago from the UK on what is a six-and-a-half-month deployment. Um, obviously, the ship was put through its paces, as was the whole task group before we deployed from UK waters. Um, so this is just one in a series of bilateral and multinational exercises that we will conduct over the coming months in order to hone our warfighting readiness to ensure that we're capable of responding to any crisis as directed by the UK government. And how well are you doing? Well, so far I've been very pleased by the performance of my ship's company. It's been a challenging exercise. We've come under um, surface and air attack from enemy forces, therefore fully testing our responses and we'll be conducting a, a major amphibious raid tonight on an island. Just tell us a bit more about the ship itself because it did have a refit not so long ago. How is that changing things for you? Well, it's ensured the readiness of the ship for this testing deployment over the next six and a half months and, and furthermore a deployment which um, is currently being determined for next year um, and it's ensured that we've got a robust material state and that we're in a good position to see us through for the next six and a half months and potentially beyond should we be extended for whatever reason. Mm, you say that you're, you're quite happy so far in the way the ship's company has been performing. Any areas where you think you can improve? Well, there's always room for improvement, but um, I've got a highly professional team um, who are up for the fight, and we're very much looking forward to the challenges which the deployment will bring over the coming months. Christopher Lee, um, this is what, in its fifth year, this exercise. Yeah, fifth year. It's, it's, it's a sort of thing, uh, the importance that I used to think, was that you're quite often operating with people you don't normally operate with. Mm. And you might say, for, um, in a, in a, in a, even in a standing naval force, uh, working with people who are different, Different standards to your own have different, almost different procedures in, in times past. I, ju I just wonder how you actually, how much you learn from these different procedures, these different capabilities when you're working with an organisation, Captain, that you may later on have to do for real. Well, as you'll be aware, Albania is a key partner of the United Kingdom and a NATO partner as well, and it's very much a growing and very positive military engagement between our two countries. Um, so, Actually, we're looking at employing NATO procedures throughout the exercise, um, which, of course, both the Albanians and ourselves are very familiar with. But as you say, we're fully expecting to work as part of a coalition, especially once we proceed into the Gulf region. Are there any particular differences in the way you work compared to the Albanians? No, I think um, there's, in terms of basic tactics, techniques and procedures, there's a great deal of commonality. Obviously, there's some differing views in terms of the threats we may face. Of course, the UK maintains a very expeditionary focus um, in all that it does. Um, but it's a great pleasure to be operating alongside the Albanians, and we've been privileged to host um, not only some of their commandos, but also some of their Air Force personnel on board Ocean over the last week. OK, so, and, and that's gone well when they've been on board then? Yeah, no, it's gone very well indeed, and um, hopefully we'll provide the basis for further exercises in the future. Listen, all the best. I'll let you get back to work. Good to speak to you today, Captain Rob Pedro from HMS Ocean. Thank you for your time. The Conservatives have been talking defence at their conference in Birmingham this week. We are always committed to a strong national defence and supporting the finest armed forces known to man. Not only will we remain committed to spending 2% of our national income on defence, but we will never again, in any future conflict, let those activist, left-wing, human rights lawyers harangue and harass the bravest of the brave. 
Well, that was the Prime Minister, Theresa May, referring to the announcement that servicemen and women are to be exempted from the European Convention on Human Rights. Earlier this week, the Defence Secretary, Sir Michael Fallon, told the conference it would protect the forces from industrial-scale legal claims. Our correspondent, James Hurst, asked the Defence Secretary what this means for the thousands of troops who face investigation for their actions in Iraq and Afghanistan. I know the stress involved, of course, and the Ministry will always help those who are subject to these allegations. We will help them with legal aid and other support. It's obviously very stressful, particularly when these allegations are made so many years after the alleged offence. One of the things that the European Convention on Human Rights provides protection for is troops themselves. There are going to be some families, some injured veterans who think actually what you're doing is making it harder to sue the government for, for missing its duty of care. Well, that duty of care is usually exercised within the United Kingdom. This is about uh, um, derogating from the Convention as it applies to uh, conflicts overseas, outside Europe. But there have been questions about duty of care providing the correct equipment in in conflicts, for example. Well, yes, but, um, you know, we will see uh, exactly when we choose to derogate, what the effect of that will be on every specific conflict. This doesn't mean we'll necessarily derogate from everything. We will judge each particular conflict on its merits. You and the Prime Minister have been clear you still expect British troops to stick within uh, the laws of armed conflict. But if we look at, for example, the case of Bahamusa, it went through the courts justice wasn't properly delivered. It took the civilian courts effectively to force a public inquiry to get to justice. This is just going to make it harder to get justice in some cases, isn't it? No, I don't accept that. The UK criminal law will will, will apply. The Geneva Conventions, the law of armed conflict, international humanitarian law will still apply. We have some of the, uh, the most respected armed forces in the world and some of the highest professional standards. What will you say today to uh, a soldier who is worried that if they're sent into battle in the future they might be prosecuted and what would you also say to somebody who's facing investigation from conflicts they've been involved in in the past? Well for future uh, uh, conflicts, future battlefields where troops are sent into action this will, if we derogate from the convention, this will give them much better protection against the several thousand spurious claims that we've seen, uh, particularly where they detain uh, a terrorist or a potential terrorist, uh, they won't then be subject to, uh, to legal action. For those who are subject to allegations at the moment, um, we do need to do as much as possible to get through the spurious allegations, get these actions discontinued. Um, they can't all have merit, and we found out they don't all have merit. So we want to get those cleared away so there isn't uh, an unnecessarily full investigation where the allegation doesn't really have much substance to it. Just finally, briefly, you, you said you expect to, to clear another thousand spurious yeah. cases by January. How, how can you say that if, they, if, if those investigations aren't yet complete? Well, they are going, uh, they are going on at the moment. IHAT has, has more resources now. They are uh, honing down the way they tackle these uh, particular allegations. They have discontinued a large number of them. And there is work in hand now to make sure that more than a 1,000 of these cases will be discontinued by around January. That will leave, of the original 3,500, that will leave about 250 allegations. And within there, there may well be more serious allegations that do have to be looked at. But, of course, it will be easier for the team to do that once they've got rid of all the nonsense.
That was Sir Michael Fallon talking to James Hurst. Uh, Christopher, what do you make of this? Can they get rid of what he describes as all the nonsense? Well, you start off with Prime Minister. I mean, one doesn't go around knocking the Prime Minister, but when she starts talking about the people that champion the, the whole idea of prosecution, and she called them left-wingers, well, someone like John Cooper, John Cooper QC, he's hardly the Middle Temple's pinko to centre of the month, is he? <laughs> I mean, he's looking at this in a way that he would say that we've got, say, let's say, 3,000 allegations and 250 be taken seriously. The fact that we do take it seriously, that it could be subject for the courts, is in fact a very important thing for it to be seen abroad, that that's how... So going through the something. process, you would argue, is, is worthwhile? But going through the legitimate process rather than the process which is just for cases that should not be answered. There is a very important point here. Uh, Article 15 in the Human Rights says that you have to you have to deploy that argue, uh, Article 15, which you would say this happened because we, the United Kingdom, and this soldier, let us say, was at war or in an emergency situation which threatened the United Kingdom. That is almost, if you look around what's happening in the moment of the world, almost impossible to prove. And that's where the government's on very, very, very weak ground. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Now, there's a chance to get new insight into the lengths British spies will go to in the fight against international terrorism in a new book written by a former MI5 agent. In Soldier Spy, Tom Marcus, not his real name, has written a detailed account of his time as a soldier working for special ops in Northern Ireland and his subsequent recruitment to MI5. Well, the book has been cleared for publication by MI5 and we can talk to Tom now. Tom, good to speak to you. Um, you joined the army age 16 and later became an MI5 agent. How did that sort of crossover happen? Well, um, thanks for having me, by the way, but uh, I f sort of fell into it purely by chance, really. Um, I joined the military, like you say, at 16, um, and at that time, no one had ever heard of sort of special operations. Everyone had kind of heard of the SAS heroes, and everyone aspired to be that sort of ilk, if you like, but no one had, I, I certainly had never heard of special ops. Um, and it was when I was with my unit, my first unit in, in Germany, um, with the engineers and the commanding officer at the time actually volunteered me for special ops selection mm. um, and he said you know he, he just brought it out of the blue and it, obviously detailed account in the book but he, he said um, you know enjoy your Christmas but you're not coming back you start selection in, in January and I was the youngest person the youngest soldier at the time to ever attempt to pass it never mind you know succeed and go on to um, to the to u the unit over in Northern Ireland and working over there, um, all our counter-terrorism um, jobs out there were run by MI5 um, mm. intelligence officers. And spending a number of years there and sort of rising through the ranks and things, uh, the the handler at the time, an MI5 intelligence officer himself, t actually recruited me, tapped me on the shoulder and said, look, you know, what you're doing out here for us is great, but I want you to do it on the streets officially for MI5. And that's when I, I stopped working for them deniably and started working officially as a, as a surveillance officer. So officially working as a surveillance officer when did that start um not long after the uh, the 77 attacks um it was there was obviously a, a big shift just before that in in the threat to the, the uk it, started, it was quite apparent that it started from the islamic extremists um and there was a and there was a clear shift in the types of surveillance officers that were started to recruit so it was no longer highly educated uh, Eaton, Cambridge, all those hmm. sort of Londonites. They wanted people who could comfortably live on the streets, and obviously that's why I was I was brought in because I was I was really good at that. Uh, uh, how was it 
what, what in terms of well you say you were really comfortable sort of living on the streets and behave i mean what what was the work like on a day-to-day basis uh, it's extremely fast um it's always changing um the the operations that we that we we're involved in and you know hunting these these terrorists down it's never it's never a case of you start one operation um start investigating a particular target or group of targets and stick with that for months on end virtually every day your targets change and sometimes you know a few times a day so you're always in different parts of the country you're in different profiles to live your cover on the street so one day you could be dressed as a painter and decorator you know in 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 a pub somewhere or another day like in the book i could be dressed as a tramp on the streets um you know watching targets come out of certain areas what was the kind of vibe within mi5 at the time because you talk about having been recruited just shortly after seven seven how did it what was the atmosphere like shortly after the attack um Everyone was was absolutely gutted. Um, we we work, and not just the guys on the ground. But you like, must have felt very motivated, I suppose. Well, the the guys on in in the teams, the surveillance teams, all we wanted to do was was get out on the ground and get these people under control, and, and making sure that they they never ever do anything like this again um but obviously when we initially hear the news everyone was everyone was just gutted um because we live and live and breathe our work and it's and, and we do everything to to put ourselves between you know harm's way and the public um and, and we do we do a great job of that of course there's a big recruitment drive for the secret services at the moment is it mm-hmm. a career that you would recommend oh absolutely absolutely without Why? a shadow of a doubt i don't think um you know when a lot of people uh, think about sort of joining uh, MI5 or MI6 or G- even GCHQ, they, 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 they might have this sort of romantic notion about, you know, doing good and, and, and serving queen and country and stuff. And for, but, and for me, it was never about that. It was, it was about just doing, doing what, I, what I was good at, you know, hunting people down and, and, and just working within the teams and that camaraderie and doing something that you know mm. you're, you're, you're securing people's future. They, they, if, if people want to sit at home eating pot noodles, watching Jeremy Kyle, they can do that because we're keeping them safe. And without going into all the details of the operation, what do you think is your biggest success? The, it's, it's hard to pinpoint one one big operation or one great success because for for us we never ever celebrate those successes it's um you know if we call executive action into to arrest these these people and take them off the street for good then we roll straight into another job so it's hard to pinpoint one but i suppose the the looking at the 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 amount of attacks that we've stopped not just me personally in the teams but as a service and as an intelligence a, a community right across the board we've stopped hundreds of attacks over the years and i think that collectively is probably the 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 best feeling that anyone could have all right tom marcus really good to speak to you that's tom marcus author of soldier spy which is out today he Thank was a you. good advert wasn't he christopher He's a very good. He was a very good advert, and so I imagine he, his, his book won't be. I tell you, there's an in, interesting thought. Um, we're talking about him as as an agent. Um, officers are not because they're sort of three pit wonders or anything like that. But the, in, in the MI5 Corps, they're, they're permanent people, officers. The others are agents. And when we have this great, you know, theatrical thing and cinema, a spy and an agent, uh, these are sort of part timers. People are just being being roped into the do the job. At the moment, about a third of the department 
our agents, in other words, part-timers. Now, uh, something that's not much talked about uh, this week in the news is this conference by the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE, um, Mediterranean Conference. What's going on exactly? The OSCE is very important. It was drawn out of the the, uh, CSE, the Conference on Security and Cooperation of Europe, which produced, for example, in 1975, the famous Helsinki Acts on on Human Rights and Mm. things like that. So it's got a... They're also the people that are monitoring what's going on in the Ukraine. Anyway, the conference here is looking at youth development part, a lot of it's youth development in in Europe, especially southern Europe, and so people from uh, officials are coming to talk about it from Libya, because it's what's happening to the youth in Libya is still causing the problems, and they're going to have to fix the problems in future. The French are coming to talk about their, their attitude towards youth and how they're trying to develop youth and move them in a, another way because they say, for example, when you get youth crime, it may have originated sort of in Monaco, and it's the sort of youth crime that knocks over a dance hall. And this, this, the thinking being that it's training people not only to sort of deal with the future threats to security, but also to perhaps head off by, by allowing young people to be involved. Allowing young people to be involved, but also to reflect young people's movements, because if you're going to understand what the f- future threat might be, more and more you've got to understand how youth, and we're talking about people between the ages of about 18 to 35, how they react how they react to modern politics. We talk about, you know, why America's producing the sort of people it is for the presidential candidate, because people are angry with their politicians, why things have changed, why Britain wants out of Brexit, mm. etc. Because it, it's more than that. It's because the future, the younger people are not taking any notice, and it's how to put them on track as they would have it. Mm. Well, that is all we have time for today. My thanks to all of our guests. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS Sitrep. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe to this show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS Sitrep. We're back the same time next week. So, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you very much for listening, and I'll speak to you again the same time next week. Bye-bye for now. of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.